For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, a recap of important results from the Arizona primary with Christopher Conover. Follow the trajectory of the OSIRIS-REx mission as it enters the final stage before blastoff. Meet Marshall Flippo, an 88-year-old professional square dance caller. And Chris DeShiel remembers the talents of actor and writer Gene Wilder. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. At least here in Arizona, the 2016 election season took an important step forward earlier this week with the state primary election. Joining me now is Christopher Conover to talk about the results. Tell me, Christopher, was voter turnout as large as was expected? It was about exactly as expected. Turnout in the primaries hovers in that 25 to 30 percent range, give or take a few points. Statewide turnout was 24 percent. Here in Pima County, we got to 29 percent. So it was about as expected. Not so high as the presidential preference election in March, which was a 52 percent turnout but still about what everyone was looking for. Well, back in March, there were some complaints that the voting system didn't work as well as expected. There weren't enough polling places. Did we see those kinds of things happening during this election? Most of those complaints were centered in Maricopa County, and it looks like, uh, from all the reports up there, the election did have its problems. The Secretary of State unveiled a new election night uh, results website uh, just in time for the election. And as soon as 8 o'clock rolled around and numbers started coming in, it promptly crashed. Uh, It was designed in-house. They had had some problems with a vendor and fired a vendor and just designed it in-house. I talked to the folks in the Secretary of State's office the day after the election, what happened, and they said it was basically a technical problem that caused things to back up and overload the system. They got it fixed. It was a little bit hit and miss throughout the night, but overall... uh, they got that problem fixed, and they promised that it is solidly fixed uh, for the November election. John McCain has been quoted as saying that he feels that this year is the political fight of his life. So how did he come out of the primaries, and what is he looking forward to in the general election against Dan Kirkpatrick? He came out of the primaries pretty easily. His strongest challenge was from Kelly Ward, a former state senator, The Tea Party branch of the Republican Party is where Kelly Ward sits. Their complaint is he's too old, he just turned 80, and he's not conservative enough for Arizona. Well, more than half of Republican voters disagreed uh, in the primary and sent him on to the general. But he is facing a tough reelection. He's now faced with Democrat Ann Kirkpatrick. She currently represents the first congressional district in Arizona, a very large district. She's a veteran politician, and all the national polls have this race tied or within the margin of error. It's listed as a very, very close, close race. Let's take a closer look now at the congressional district races and start with CD1. Tell me what occurred. In the first congressional district, it's It's an open seat because Ann Kirkpatrick, who currently represents it, is running for Senate against John McCain. Five Republicans were competing uh, for that Republican nomination, and Pinal County Sheriff Paul Babu came out on top of that race. 
it was interesting. There was a big anti-Paul Babu movement towards the end of that race. And what it looks like may have happened is all the anti-Babu forces got split between the other Republican candidates. So Babu was able to get through uh, because of the split race. Now he faces Tom O'Halloran, who is a Democrat, former state lawmaker, who was a Republican and has become a Democrat uh, in this general election. It's an interesting race because here in the southern part of the district, it stretches to Marana Oro Valley in the south. That's a conservative area, but it goes all the way north up to the Utah border and picks up Flagstaff, which is as conservative as Marana and Oro Valley are. Flagstaff is liberal. Plus, then you have a lot of ranching communities and the Navajo Nation are also within there. So it's a very diverse district. The registration leans Democrat, but just barely. So this is going to be a big race to watch nationally. It's held by the Democrats. Republicans think they can pull this seat back to their camp. And it's right now listed as a toss-up nationally. Let's switch over to CD2 now and look at Matt Hines' situation coming out of the primary. Dr. Matt Hines, a somewhat familiar name uh, to people in the 2nd Congressional District, at least those who live in Tucson. He's a former member of the legislature, uh, worked in the federal government with the rollout of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, He's an emergency room or was an emergency room physician. He's still a physician at a local hospital. So he's someone who people know. He now faces Martha McSally, uh, who is the incumbent. She's been in Congress for two years, lots of votes, plenty of bills that she's sponsored, some of which have passed, some of which haven't, which is normal. And Matt Hines is going to go after Congresswoman McSally on her record. At the same time, Congresswoman McSally says, hey, I've got a record now. Look at what I've done. So they're both using the same thing, just looking at two different sides of that record. This will also be a race that garners a lot of national attention. And uh, how does the Pima County Supervisors race look now, particularly in relation to Sharon Bronson's position? Right now, the Pima County Supervisors is 3-2 majority Democrats. The two Republican seats will most likely remain in Republican hands come November. What's interesting is Republicans say they can pick off Sharon Bronson, who's been in office for a long time, and they can take that majority 3-2 Republican. Now, one might think, well, of course the Republicans are saying that. Uh, Why wouldn't they say that? However, even Democrats, Sharon Bronson and others, have said they're worried that this is going to be a difficult race. Everybody acknowledges, like the race in Congressional District 2, the Senate race, Congressional District 1, this could be a very tight race. So it is within the realm of possible that the Pima County Board of Supervisors could go 3-2 Republican come November. Thank you for your analysis, Christopher. We'll be uh, keeping up with everything online. You can go to azpm.org and click on your vote to get all the latest information. For over 60 years, the University of Arizona has been involved in nearly every planetary space mission that NASA has launched, including the next one. OSIRIS-REx is locked, loaded, and ready to go. T-minus 10, 9, 8. Well, not quite that ready. 
The decades-long mission to touch the asteroid named Bennu and return a sample back to Earth is poised to leave Earth. Launches September 8, 2016 at 7.05 p.m. Eastern. Dante Loretta is from the Lunar and Planetary Lab at the University of Arizona. Uh, well, the good news is September 8th is the opening of a 34-day launch window. So we've got over a month to resolve any issues, wait out any storms, and still get away on our way to the journey to Bennu. That's hurricane season in Florida, so we may be delayed just from a regular storm coming through. They really look for optimum upper atmospheric conditions for the launch. The primary goal of the mission is to study the composition of the asteroid to determine the origin of life on Earth. NASA awarded the mission to Michael Drake and the University of Arizona in May of 2011. Asteroids of the sort we're going to is, is very rich in organics and probably is the sort of material that hit the Earth and provided those organic materials. This is a sample return mission. The real holy grail is to return and we promised NASA at least 60 grams, we'll probably return a lot more than that, uh, uh, to Earth in the year 2023 in September. However, just months later, Michael Drake died suddenly. Dante Loretta was then put in charge of the mission. So I had some big shoes to fill, and I had a lot of pressure and responsibility to step up and get that done. So I was dealing with the, the loss of somebody that you care about, and I was also, uh, all of a sudden, I had all this new responsibility that I had to step up and get done. And so it was probably one of the most difficult times of my life. Much of that pressure and responsibility comes from the nature of the mission. While receiving help from NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center and Lockheed Martin Space Systems, OSIRIS-REx is one of the few missions to be headquartered at a university. OSIRIS-REx uh, means a lot to the University of Arizona. It's the largest uh, principal investigator-led mission um, out of a university to date. Heather Enos is the planning and control officer for the mission. It's, it's a billion dollar mission and of that billion dollars about 200 million dollars um, filters through Arizona uh, via the University of Arizona as well as some of our subcontractors. So it continues to, to play a large part and an economic uh, engine in, in southern Arizona as well as we have continued and will continue to employ a significant amount of graduate students and undergraduate students. John Kidd, now a mission engineer, began as one of those students. Well, one of the great things about Cyrus-Rex is there are a lot of people in my age group, very young, our first mission, and there are those older, more experienced engineers and scientists on the mission. And so one of the things I try to do is just learn as much as I can from them about what does this life cycle of a mission look like, uh, how does this relate to other missions you've been on, uh, just so that we can kind of have a passing of the torch of that knowledge. Before all that knowledge gets passed on, the spacecraft must first get off the ground. Now just days away, that launch is foremost on Principal Investigator Dante Loretta's mind. I think the anxiety is just from the fact that it's been 12 years to get to this point, and it's really here, and I almost can't believe that it's happening, and uh, it's a critical moment. I mean, we're strapping our spacecraft on top of a huge pile of explosives and sending it off into space, and that has to go well. So. Just the thought that it might not is enough to cause me to lose sleep. After blastoff, it will take two years to chase down the asteroid, then nearly two more years to study the asteroid with lasers, cameras, and spectrometers before grabbing that two-ounce sample and returning to Earth. After a two-year journey back home, 
the results from studying Bennu's composition could have implications about the origin of life on planets, and not just our own. When we're looking at the samples from OSIRIS-REx, we're asking ourselves the question, did these carbonaceous asteroids deliver the building blocks of life to Earth? And if we find out that is indeed the case, these are rocks from outer space. They probably delivered the same material to Mars, to Europa, to Titan, leading us to those habitable locations and thinking about that there's a likelihood that life may have originated there. Five, four, three, we have ignition, two, one, zero, we have liftoff. That segment was produced by Tom Clesby and narrated by Mary Paul. To learn more about the OSIRIS-REx mission, including what that acronym stands for, visit our website, azpm.org. Arizona Public Media will present a special half-hour documentary, OSIRIS-REx, Countdown to Launch, on PBS 6, Sunday, September 4th at 6.30 p.m., and again on launch day, that's September 8th at 6.30 p.m. Marshall Flippo started square dance calling with his wife in 1951. The following year, he began his career as a square dance caller on a friend's chicken farm. He says his friends and family usually call him Flip. Only his mother called him Marshall. Flippo became a recognized legend in square dance history and now lives in southern Arizona. He's the resident caller at Rincon Country West Resort, where he can be found sharing his unique style with local dancers. Vanessa Barchfield caught up with him at the Kanoa Hills Social Center in Green Valley, Arizona. Hi, this is Flippo, and thanks so very much for buying the CD. Hope you enjoy it. All these numbers are just as they were recorded. The first one we did was the auctioneer. First and third you'll bound, swing, go up to the middle and back again, go forward up and swing an opposite gal. I'm Marshall Flippo, I'm from Abilene, Texas, and uh, I'm uh, 88. September 2nd. Well, I was in World War II. I was in, after I got out of the service, uh, married, and then she took me to the first square dance, and I, I went with a friend of mine, Hub Evans, and Hub and I were both at Iwo Jima, so we was pulling up to the dance, and Hub says, I'm more scared now than I was on Iwo Jima when I said, I am too. Never had danced a step in any kind of dancing before in my life. And, uh, the first right and left ground is uh, you start with your partner's right hand and you continue around the square, changing hands with each person you meet. And that sold me on the square dancing. I don't know whether it was a touching or what it was, but uh, I, th I believe I might have liked it. And I couldn't wait for the next lessons. Now some of these figures with some of these dances are uh, uh, kind of dangerous to your health if you try to dance them. Then when I started calling, well I couldn't stay on the beat of the music, you know. But then, uh, you know, I just kept, my wife helped me a lot. 
Uh, of course, we had a home then, not much money, but uh, so I practiced in there with an old record. And she said, now, Flip, you've got to stay on beat. So she, I said, well, I'm crying. She said, I know that you can pat your foot to the music. I know you walk to the music okay. When that foot hits the floor, say, bow to your partner, corners off, circle of the left, go round off. So I kept working on it. Came out okay. Now what else you want to know? We had a Greyhound bus driver that uh, used to come down to Abilene from Wichita Falls, Texas. I'd been calling, this is during all the 50s, and he'd come down there and he said, Say, you know, I was at a place in Missouri. It's called Kirkwood Lodge. It's on the Lake of the Ozarks. But I was noticing in their brochure they have square dancing there. So we decided to take us a square dance vacation. And we went and just had probably the best time we ever had in our lives. Circle left. Welcome to Lake of the Ozarks. Welcome to our special land of And we decided to go back the next year on vacation. So we did, and I was calling at the time. And uh, and then we went back the next year. Then we skipped a year, and uh, then we went back the next year. The guy that owned the lodge, he said, how would you like to come here and stay all the time, be the staff caller here? So he talked it over and decided we'd take it. So 42 years later, we left. <laughs> Come down the middle and do the vinyl lift through. Why don't you square through both fours? I knew then that I'd have to quit my job as square dancing was going to have to be it. So it's open from April to October. Then October I had to start touring. And I usually start out up through uh, North Missouri, into Iowa, into Minnesota, over into Wisconsin, over into Illinois, up into Michigan. I'd be in Chattanooga, and I'd be in Birmingham, in Memphis, and Little Rock, and Dallas, and into Abilene, in Germany, and uh, Sweden, and England, Japan. I don't know how many times I've been over there, but uh, uh, see, uh, square dance lingo is uh, a language of its own, and so, like, if I say dosado, you say dosado to them, they know exactly what you're saying. But they can't talk to you. It was a good life. I had a son. My wife traveled with me till he came along. And then we were married 42 years, and then I got hot pants, and we were divorced, and I married again, and uh, now we're divorced. But I'm closer to my first wife than we've ever been. We talk about three or four times a week. And uh, one time I think, I said, I believe I'll drive over. Oh, she said, I wish you would. So I drove over and visited with her. Have you ever been on top of the world and all of a sudden you're back down on the ground hard in seconds? We was talking, uh, sitting in her beautiful backyard. She said, uh, man, I just love you more than anything. I just love you. I really don't know what I'd do without you. And I said, is that that wine talking or is that you? She said, that's me talking to the wine. <laughs> so thud, I hit the ground. Uh, but uh, anyway, she is really a nice church-going woman. Circle to the left, I've just caught the love bug. It's your mommy, darling. 
And I want to play house with you I heard Ann Murray sing this next one uh, and I'd heard it a long time ago, I think back in the 50s. Uh, but uh, I like the song real well and here it is, Shine. Hope you enjoy it. Square dancing was still going good between the 60s and the 90s. Just big old crowds, like 30,000 at our national convention, and uh, now national convention is 5,000, 6,000. All we had to contend with for a long time was bowling, you know. And uh, in a way, it's kind of heartbreaking, really. Uh, what is it that that you always liked about square dancing? What is it that appealed to you? I think the fun and the friendship and the smiles, you know. You go down Walmart and you don't see the smiles. And a lot of places you don't go see the smiles. And uh, you can't help but uh, go to a square dance and see a lot of smiles. A first and third, got a bound swing, up to the middle and back again, go forward up and swing that opposite gal. Face the side like you always do, go right left through and turn to, then duck to the middle, swing the girl you meet. Well, you know by now that I'm not the world's greatest speaker. So if you want to, you know, you can just uh, fast forward your CD player when you come to The Voice and go to the next song. And that'll cancel me plumb out. Thanks again. Bye. You can see Marshall Flippo in action in a television story produced by Vanessa Barchfield and Mitchell Riley. It's on our website, azpm.org. My first remembered glimpse of actor Gene Wilder came right alongside those of the children in 1971's Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. A door opens mysteriously, and from it emerges a strangely dressed man, one who almost looks like he might never have walked outside his factory before. Slowly, achingly, he limps forward leaning on a cane, and the crowd gathered around him gasps and goes silent. Even as a small child, I felt something must be desperately wrong. But it's all a calculated trick, Wonka's way of dodging expectations. And it was Gene Wilder's own idea. Because from that time on, he said, no one will know if I'm lying or telling the truth. And he was right. Here is film essayist Chris DeShiel with an appreciation. This week, one of our very best comic actors died. Gene Wilder was 83 years old. He hadn't appeared in many movies recently, but he had stayed busy, publishing three novels, a short story collection, and a memoir, until he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's three years ago. Although film comedy since the 1970s now seems unimaginable without him, he was an unlikely star. With his childlike features, frizzy hair, and eccentric mannerisms, one might have expected him to be more of a supporting player. But, as we all found out, he was something special. He had some success in the New York theater in the 1960s, but his big break came when he was in a play with Anne Bancroft, and she introduced him to her then-boyfriend and future husband, Mel Brooks. Years later, someone asked him if meeting Mel Brooks was a watershed moment in his life. Wilder replied, When Moses first heard God speak to him, do you think that was a watershed moment? Anyway, after Wilder got a small but memorable role in Bonnie and Clyde, 
Brooks chose him to co-star in his first film, The Producers. Wilder's part was Leo Bloom, a timid accountant hired by a shabby Broadway producer, played by the great Zero Mostel. It must have been quite a thrill for Wilder, a virtual unknown, to find himself teamed up with a living legend. As it turned out, his intense neurotic comedy style was a perfect foil for the bombastic Mostel. The interplay between these two is hilarious throughout. Few could forget the scene where Wilder becomes hysterical after Mostel grabs his little blue blanket. Mr. Bialystok, I cannot function under these conditions. You make me extremely nervous. What is that, a handkerchief? What? Nothing, that's nothing. If it's I nothing, why can't I see ah! My blanket, my blue blanket, give me my blue blanket. The producers was a success, and Wilder found himself getting a lot of good parts. In 1971, he did Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. What a lot of people don't realize now is that the movie did not do well at the box office. It only became a kind of classic gradually over the years, as more and more people discovered it. The film is, in fact, a morality play and has an interesting dark side to it. Wilder's performance is quite complex. That wonderful smile combined with a tendency to mischief and just a slight hint of menace. Then, of course, in 1974 came Blazing Saddles. Mel Brooks actually had someone else stated to play the gunfighter in his parody western, but that actor flopped, and so Brooks tapped Wilder to replace him. Once again, a weird bit of casting. But here, Wilder shows his versatility. In a movie where everyone else is chewing up the scenery, Wilder underplays, constantly amusing us with his easygoing manner and casual sarcasm. What did you expect? Welcome, Sonny. Make yourself at home. Marry my daughter. You've got to remember that these are just simple farmers. These are people of the land the common clay of the New West. You know, morons. <laughs> Blazing Saddles was a huge hit, and that led to another Brooks parody, Young Frankenstein, one of the few parodies that also succeeds as an affectionate tribute, in this case, to the horror genre. Wilder plays the title role of the mad scientist, and he's clearly having the time of his life. Dr. Frankenstein. Frankenstein. You're putting me on. No, it's pronounced Frankenstein. It was Wilder who had the idea of teaming up with Richard Pryor in Silver Streak, a sort of Hitchcock takeoff. They were very different people and had some difficulties working together, but on screen they clicked. Pryor's edginess contrasting with Wilder's manic approach. It was a big hit, and the two ended up making three more films together. There was something reassuring about the Wilder-Pryor duo at that time, a black man and a white man, at ease and comfortable with each other's style. How much you want for that radio? Thirty dollars. We're taking it. Pay the man. What? Pay the man. It's a bad hat you got on. Give me five dollars for it. It's yours. Thank you. Pay the man. What? Pay the man. And another five for the shoe polish. What do we want with shoe polish? Don't argue, just pay to me. Wilder wrote and directed some of his own films, of which my favorite is The Adventure of Sherlock Holmes' Smarter Brother. He did seem smarter, more thoughtful than the average comic actor. 
But more than that, I appreciated his gentleness. There's never a sense of cruelty in Wilder's work. His fondness for looking and being silly, of celebrating the ridiculous in everything, inspires nothing but love and kindness. Thank you, Gene Wilder, for the happiness you brought to the world. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Chris DeShiel. Gild and I sang this song, and it made us feel better. Why, oh, why, oh, why, oh, why did I ever leave Ohio? According to a statement from his family, Gene Wilder did not want news of his Alzheimer's diagnosis from three years ago made public. He said he didn't want children, who still often recognized him on the street as Willy Wonka, to have their delight turn into worry, disappointment, or confusion. The family said Gene Wilder simply couldn't bear the idea of one less smile in the world. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.